0: So our next speaker is an underrepresented minority, that is he's a, a psychiatrist at an AIDS meeting. Um, most of you uh, know Dr. Treisman. For those of you who have never heard him speak, you're in for a treat. I feel a little bit like Bruce Springsteen introducing Clarence Clemens in the sense that uh, he's the guy who sort of anchors us into lunch and, and sort of carries the spirit of the meeting forward. Glenn Treisman is a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins University. He's one of the few bona fide AIDS psychiatrists in the world, and uh, and as such gives uh, wonderful uh, lectures that sort of bridge for the clinicians here um, what the world of psychiatry is doing and should be doing versus what are we doing in our practices and how to help us take care of our patients, uh, many of whom have uh, comorbid conditions related to psychiatric illness. Glenn is uh, uh, just a star, and it's always a pleasure to have him here. Uh, He's taught me more psychiatry in a one-hour lecture than I usually received in my whole clerkship in uh, medical school, which says both about him and and my training. But um, uh, welcome, Glenn. Thank you so
1: much, Later we'll sing together. Um, So... um, the extensive psychiatric pathology seen in HIV and hepatitis C clinics um, is, has been clearly demonstrated. When I started, um, that wasn't very well demonstrated and people didn't understand why the psychiatric disorders were prevalent. We now know a little bit more about that. Um, because we understand that psychiatric disorders are prevalent, 50% of your patients are psychiatrically ill and 75% have some substance use disorder history or current use. Um, you get a huge amount of psychiatric training when you do internal medicine, zero, and a huge amount of psychiatric training when you do an infectious disease or hepatology uh, fellowship, zero. And that—that um, that is not because you don't, uh, we don't know that psychiatry is important. It's because my field has been so incoherent in describing what it does and we haven't persuaded our colleagues of our value. And so I don't really hold medicine accountable for that I hold psychiatry accountable for that today I'm going to tell you some of the things that about uh, substance abuse that I think allow you to think about substance abuse as a medical problem rather than as um, a moral problem or a, a psychological problem it is psychological in sense but it is medical and it is the purview of every physician to know about it there's one of my patients doing research um, he got a small grant uh <laughs> This is a uh, international map of uh, IV drug use. Um, uh, you, you probably have guessed that red is bad. Um, so bad, pretty bad. Um, maybe not as bad, or maybe not reported. Um, and uh, not too bad, except probably underreported. So IV drug use is a big problem, um, and HIV is uh, is driven in part by that. So this represents both IV drug abuse and HIV infection related to it. Um, this, is the, uh, this is the lifetime prevalence of narcotics taken outside of a doctor's orders. And as you all know, there's a huge increase in the use of narcotics, uh, not heroin, but all narcotics. And most of this is prescribed narcotics being taken for uh, other reasons than a physician telling you. And you can see there's uh, 12th graders, college students and young adults There is another study that I'm not showing you that looks at uh, preteens and their opiate use, and it is shocking to see uh, what uh, 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th graders are doing with opiates. You wouldn't think they'd be at risk, but in fact they are, um, and they're sharing pills. This shows you um, deaths related to opiates, and I want you to see that heroin, um, which is uh, the first one right there, heroin, you see the deaths aren't changing very much, but look at the deaths due to other narcotics um, over the years. And so in 1999, 2007, there's been a huge increase in deaths related to methadone, cocaine, um, and uh, other opioids. Um, The uh, OxyContin problem in the Southern United States is uh, outrageous, but is following suit all over the place. So we prescribe three quarters of the world's opiates in the United States, and about 95% of the oxycodone in the world. So we're we're using more than our share of opiates. Um, we don't have more than our share of pain. So s- some disconnect there. Um, it, it's not just because Bush was president because it's still not. It's still going up. So um, these are uh, th- this this just shows you the differences. So if you were to go to the, this, uh, this is the Northeast, so uh, I'm in uh, Baltimore, which is this, the capital of the Northeast heroin epidemic. And you can see here on the Northeast um, uh, bar, which is that big bar on, the, on heroin, that's us. And um, you, what you see is that um, different opiates are used differently in different places and abused differently in different places. You can't, the opiate addicts don't really care. So what's quite remarkable is the, this represents not so much a preference as what's most available in a particular place. And if you have a person who's using oxycodone or oxycontin and suddenly it's not available, those people will inject heroin perfectly happily, and then when more oxycontin is available, they'll go back. And so um, this represents kind of the, both the uh, historical and current availability of these drugs as much as anything else. This is a really interesting graph. I'm going to put the, this is not. These are things I added at our faculty meeting, and they're not in your handout. But I'm going to put this on the website. This particular one. This shows the uh, this shows the um, unadjusted relative risk of abuse of drugs. So what you see is Vicodin hydrocodone is way up here. This shows the relative risk of abuse per hundred thousand prescriptions. So it controls for the number of prescriptions. And look what happens with Vicodin. It turns out that per 100,000 prescriptions, Vicodin is much less abused. So although people like Vicodin and abuse it, if you're prescribing a pain medicine for people, per 100,000 prescriptions, Vicodin is relatively less abused. But look what happens with methadone. And and look what look what happens with um, – look at OxyContin. We know OxyContin is badly abused, but per 100,000 prescriptions, it's badly abused. So it's useful to know that when you're giving patient drugs that – we started these long-acting drugs like OxyContin because we thought they were less abuse potential. Shouldn't say we, should say some people um, who made them thought they had less abuse potential and higher patent potential. Um, but they really are widely abused. Um, you, this is not going to surprise anybody. But in patients who have uh, drug addiction, uh, there's very little uh, heart given. This is um, this shows you how uh, uh, people with uh, men who have sex with men are 35% more likely to get on a heart, all things held equal, than, than uh, drug users. And um, this shows you that, that because of that, the drug users die. So that's the dying line. And uh, you, you die if you're a drug user because you don't get heart. And um, it's not a big surprise to anybody in this room. Um, Carlos sent me a slide that I didn't put in that shows that uh, you're going to find this shocking, but providers tend not to give heart to IV, active IV drug users. Um, and they say that um, they, they, they feel like that those patients are unlikely to adhere very well, which is true. They're, they don't adhere as well. But the other thing is, when we think about when we're going to start somebody, my drug addict patients don't do very well the first couple times at bat. That is, the first time you give them heart, they mess it up. They're doing okay for a while. They relapse at drug use. They mess it up, and they come back with resistance, or they sell their uh, their, pay, their uh uh, HIV medicines, to get drugs. And the idea was you want to wait till they're ready. The problem is they never get ready. Part of getting them ready is getting them to take the medicine and screw up so that you can help them the next round. So I'm in favor and always have been in favor of starting people earlier who have psychiatric disorders and uh, addictions because they need a chance to uh, not mess up. This slide just shows you that if you're on opiate substitution, you're less likely to get hepatitis C. You're less likely to get and spread HIV. Um, if you have your suboxone program or your opiate, um, your opiate maintenance program in your clinic, you're more likely to get people on it than if they're out of the clinic and more likely to put them on a heart. So if you have an indwelling um, suboxone program in your clinic, patients are much more likely to get on suboxone than if you refer them and you're also more likely to treat them with HIV medicines. And um, this shows you that being on buprenorphine leads to increased initiation of heart and uh, better success. So if you have an indwelling, uh, on-site buprenorphine program, patients are more likely to get on heart, more likely to stay on heart, more likely to get on technical viral load and less likely to die. We think that's good, um, at least at our clinic. Um, The insurance companies have argued with us. Um, and this is a cool little graph. This is an old graph of mine. Um, these are patients who, um, who saw me once at least or more or saw my group once or more, and these are patients who didn't. These are patients with no mental disorder it diagnosed in their chart, and if they have a mental disorder and they see us at least once, survival improves compared to the clinic background. So that's because a lot of these people have mental disorders that aren't diagnosed, and they don't see us. So seeing psychiatry is good for you and has survival advantage, and yet there are relatively few psychiatrists out there. I want to talk about addiction in general for a minute. How many of you are addicted to coffee? Raise your hands. How many of you would pay 50 bucks for coffee? Raise your hands. How many of you would have sex in an alley with a person who had not bathed in three weeks to get coffee? (laughs) Welcome to crack. Okay? We talk about addiction in a, very, in a very poorly defined way. You can be physically dependent like you are on caffeine without being addicted to it. And One of the things we want to define is what is an addiction? That is, when is somebody actually addicted? And I'll tell you what is important about addiction. It disorders you. Just the use of the substance, if it's legal or illegal, if it's present or absent, if you use it regularly, it disorders you. And uh, I have seen caffeine-addicted people. We had a cardiologist at Hopkins who was caffeine-addicted. He was drinking six to eight pots of coffee in the morning, um, and he would uh, get tremulous and not really be able to see patients and uh, would, was, uh, was a thought disorder from the caffeine. But he said, I get this tremendous clarity of thought when I drink a lot of coffee. And uh, he may have gotten clarity of thought, but it was unclear to the rest of us what he was thinking. Um, <laughs> But he was actually addicted. It is reinforcing enough to addict people, but very rarely. And nicotine, again, people reach a level of nicotine intake where they tend to stay stabilized and it tends to not disorder them. It's the health consequences of nicotine that are a problem, not just the dependence on it. Um, So when we talk about dependence, we're not really talking about addiction. Addiction is increasing stereotyped use of the substance despite mounting consequences that disrupts function in all realms of life. And that's what addiction really is. The problem with this definition, the thing people don't like about it, is when has someone crossed the line? When are they addicted? If you have a couple extra drinks and you get rowdy one night and you you and your friend Sag are singing uh, semi-nude in the lobby of the hotel, are 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 you now addicted? And it partly depends on whether you do that the next night after you got in trouble with it the night before. So... Um, I tell patients they're addicted if they drive their car through the wall of their house, this is a true story, park in the living room, get out of the car, pee into a chair, lie down on the couch, and come in the next day to my office with your family and say, well, I'm not an alcoholic. If you say you're not an alcoholic when you parked in your living room, you're an alcoholic. It's the denial that there's a problem that keeps this going, and it's one of the hallmarks of addiction. So we talk about tolerance, that is, you need increasing doses of a drug to achieve the desired effect and physical dependence, but it's this reinforcement, that is, that you want to do what you did when you used the drug that makes the drug addictive. And it's because of where it acts in the brain, this little chart of your brain, and this is actually a rat brain, but um, there's this ascending mesolimbic dopamine pathway that all addictive drugs interact with. um, And most of you have been taught that addiction is a disease. That is, you've been told... That and when, by the way, on the test when it says it's addiction and disease, you should say yes because that's the standard answer. The problem is, you all know it's not a disease because when your patient with with congestive heart failure gets readmitted to the hospital with another round of congestive heart failure, you don't get mad at them. But when your guy who was sober for five months comes in drunk, you do get mad at them, and that's not because you're a moron. That's because there's a core difference between what we call a disease and addictions. And um, the wonderful thing about the disease model is is that um, it removes blame and stigma and emphasizes this is a medical condition. That's true. The problem is it doesn't really explain recovery, and it removes responsibility from patients. So, for instance, if you have a person with lupus and you say every time you have a flare, I'm going to give you a little jolt of electricity, that person will not... Stop having flares of lupus, no matter how much electricity you use. And if you take a schizophrenic person, say every time you hallucinate, you're going to get a little jolt of electricity. It won't change the frequency of their hallucinations. Those are diseases. You take an alcoholic and you put him in a chair and put his favorite booze in front of him, Uh, perhaps that bottle of red wine we had at Carlos's house last night. You say every time you touch that bottle, you're going to get a vigorous electric shock, and you leave. When you come back, the guy's fingers will be burned, but the bottle will be full. Because... It's a behavior and it has a volitional component. There is a component in addictions that is volitional. You like the behavior and therefore you do the behavior. Um, So um, the wonderful thing about the behavioral model is that it emphasizes rehabilitation and it explains why some people have the condition and don't drink and other people have the condition and do drink and that's because of treatment it may or may not involve medications, but clearly involves a tremendous amount of psychosocial interaction. So when talking about the behavioral model of addiction, I like to talk about this. Uh, this is Thorndike's uh, law of effect. Basically, you have an opportunity to do something like wear this tie. And um, if SAG says, great tie, I'll wear it again. And if SAG says, who dressed you today, Stevie Wonder, I'll wear it less. And, uh, and that's, how, that's learning 101. I mean, that's how you learn. And uh, we all go through this all the time. But in addictions, there's one more step. So remember I mentioned that little pathway in your brain called the ascending mesolimbic dopamine reward pathway? That pathway, remember the rat brain? I can go back to it real quick. There it is. So this is the ascending mesolimbic dopamine reward pathway. And what that does is this. When you do something that's good, it squirts out dopamine and you get a little, yeah! You've all probably had this experience. You score a goal. You get your grant. Your paper gets published. You get promoted. You meet somebody who's really wonderful. You get great food at somebody's house. You know, yeah. And um, we all have those all day long. Thank you for helping me yesterday. It was really great. I, the, the paper's been accepted. Yeah. Right? That pathway is why we get out of bed every day. And it drives our behavior. And dopamine is the principal factor in that. And um, there are some behaviors that are wired right into that pathway. They're wired right in. So baby cries and some milk is released in his mouth. Milk. And then he's full and he stops drinking. And then he gets hungry and he cries. See that? Positive feedback loop. That's how addictions work because... They short circuit this. There's no turnoff for those drugs, but they activate this pathway in much the same way that addictive behaviors, do, that uh, normal behaviors do. But there's no turnoff, so this cycle can get out of control really easily. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So, can we measure these things? Can we measure reinforcement? And um, this is Joe Brady's baboon. Back when I was a graduate student, we said cocaine was not addictive because there's no withdrawal from it. I don't know if you guys remember, some of you who have gray hair will remember, Time Magazine had a little uh, martini glass with cocaine on the cover. Cocaine was sort of the man of the year that year. And they said, it's a designer drug. There's no addiction. Joe Brady did this study. You put this baboon in the cage, and when he pushes that lever that his hand is on, when that light comes on, he gets banana-flavored candy in that dish. And a hungry baboon will wiggle that lever about 50 times to get banana-flavored candy. If you make them wiggle it 100 times, they just wait for dinner. Baboons know they cost 30,000 bucks and you're not going to let them starve to death. They get cranky and will hit you or bite you. They won't pull that lever more than about 50 times. Um, when that light comes on, the baboon gets the dr- When he pulls the lever, he gets this drug. And a heroin-addicted baboon will pull that lever 500 times to get heroin. And uh, if you set it, the computer on 750, they just go cold turkey. They destroy the apparatus and will hurt you. Uh, but they won't press lever more than about 500 times to get heroin. And then Joe put cocaine in that. And he found a cocaine-experienced animal, since we didn't say addictive, but cocaine addicted, but a cocaine-addicted animal will push the lever 5,000 times for cocaine. And he said, I think it's, a, I think it's addictive. And he was right, because I don't know if you saw, but on s- several graphs ago, I showed you cocaine deaths. And there are plenty of them. And cocaine drives behavior h- harder than almost anything. I was at a meeting where the guy before me talked about nicotine, and I gave my little talk about cocaine. And I said, cocaine's the most addictive drug. And I showed this little baboon. And he said afterwards, actually, nicotine is the most addictive drug. So I said, you, you have patients who will go in an alley and perform fellatio on somebody for a cigarette? He said, oh, God, no. I said, welcome to crack. You know, it's measurable. Cocaine drives behavior because it works at that reinforcement pathway. Um, And these things are made worse by psychiatric conditions like life circumstances, depression, and personality issues. So if in your world um, everybody uses drugs and you think that's a normal thing to do, and your assumption is that the only way to feel good is to use drugs, you're much more likely to use drugs... And you have a positive, mmm that drugs are good, and round and round it goes. And um, this environmental uh, world, what I will call the assumptive world that we all live in, determines whether we try drugs and whether we use drugs. Now, I mentioned depression here. That Remember that, yeah, circuit, that ascending mesolimbic dopamine circuit I mentioned a few minutes ago? Depression is a disease where that is dysfunctional and for periods of time turns off. And when you're depressed and nothing gives you a reward, you have, increased, you have decreased reward sensitivity from everything else, and therefore you're more vulnerable to drug use. You have a decreased sense of self-preservation and an increase in stimulus-seeking behavior, and you're more likely to get addicted, and then when you get addicted, it damages your brain and causes cytokines and inflammation, and it makes depression worse, and round and round you go. Um, and then lastly, I want to talk about addic- uh, personality for a minute because it plays an incredibly important role in driving these behaviors. Um, this is my introvert extrovert curve, normal curve. And introverts, um, you guys are mostly here, mostly on the introverted side. You are consequence avoidant. You are future directed and you are function directed. And so my accountant is way down here. He's extremely introverted and he could think of something that would go wrong no matter what you did and everything that would go wrong for the rest of your life. and um, Um, My patients tend to be out here, and they are reward-directed, now-focused, and feeling-focused, and that makes you much more vulnerable to addictions because addictions reward you now, and these people are relatively consequence insensitive. This says you're full of moxie, also gonorrhea. I'm not the first person to notice that there's a relationship between personality and STDs, I won't mention this stability, instability axis, but when you put these two together, you get the four Greek humors from 3,000 years ago, phlegmatic, sanguine, melancholy, and treasman consultation patients. And here they are, according to the far side. Glass is half empty, glasses half full, half full, no way half empty, and hey, ordered a cheeseburger. This is an unstably extroverted guy, and he is addiction bait. And the people who you see, who seem natural for addictions, this is, they're this guy. And by the way, the way Larson drew this, don't give this guy a cheeseburger and don't give him Oxycontin. When this guy comes in and you don't give him Oxycontin, he's going to have a temper tantrum the likes of which you have never seen before because he wants Oxycontin and he really actually thinks you're a waiter. This is the guy who will tell you what he wants. And when you don't give it to him, he's going to fill out a nasty patient satisfaction report and a complaint I I have some of those that people have filled out about me in my file of really good stuff. And uh, these guys say the best stuff. Um, They are difficult patients, and they are bait for addictions because they are focused on now feelings and rewards. And the thing that gets you to keep from using drugs is the future consequences and function, which drugs impair. And they're not interested in those. They don't want to get better. They want to feel better. You say, when you take these HIV medicines, you'll get better. They say, uh, I want to feel better. How about if I just take narcotics and benzodiazepines? Then I have to take all those HIV drugs. It'll save everybody a lot of money. You, you actually want to get people better. By the way, if you take this guy and mix him with three parts benzodiazepines and two parts narcotics, he becomes kerosene on fire for HIV spreading. So the problem is, even if these, even if you wanted to give people what they wanted, it's bad for our epidemic if you give these guys what they want. So the question becomes, why doesn't everybody get addicted when we talk about this cycle? Remember, you do a behavior, you get that reward, satiation. And the question is, what is that doing in your brain? Why do you have a cycle like that? Well, you're a baby, you cry, you get fed, and you get satisfied, and then you cry again, and you get fed, and this goes around. Eventually people say you have to ask for milk, and then you have to... Say please, and you're shaping behavior all the time. But you could see where this cycle could make you chubby. That's bad. Chubby. I know because my cardiologist tells me chubby is bad, and I have more familiarity with chubby than some people. And um, that's because this cycle is set a little too fast, and it can make you chubby. Why is that in your brain? Any of you ever been food poisoned? Raise your hand if you were food poisoned. Really food poisoned. When did you think you'd eat again? Never. Did you hear that? I, in 20 years of giving this lecture, not this lecture, but lectures on addiction, somebody always says never. That's a person who's really been food poisoned. And they, when they were throwing up for hour number seven, they said, I am never eating again. And if you said to them, oh, come on, you're going to eat again, they said, no, TPN. I am never eating again. <laughs> and they mean it with absolute sincerity. And about day three, they say, Well, maybe some plain dry toast. Mmm, toast. (laughs) Maybe some plain pasta. Mmm, pasta. Because 100,000 years ago, there were no refrigerators, no Zagat's guides, and no little book of mushrooms to look them up. We got food poisoned a lot. And if you never ate again, you couldn't join us here today because you were selected against. So this circuit is there for behaviors that are necessary for survival. Eating, sleeping, and sex. And um, if your house is on fire while you're asleep and you wake up and find your house on fire, I can assure you it will be a while before you sleep again, but you eventually, on a sunny day, lie down on the couch and take a nap. Mmm, nap. And pretty soon, and um, probably none of you have been married to my ex-wife, but <laughs> I want to tell you, it can go really wrong. And you can say never again. With conviction that made the food poisoning guys look like they're joking. But after a couple of years, you know, you meet somebody really wonderful and, mmm, toast. <laughs> now I'm married to the most wonderful person in the whole world and I have kids and my life is good. But I can assure you, it, if it wasn't for this circuit, There'd be no little treasemans, because I'm telling you, a bad experience can set you on the wrong path. And you've all had a bad experience. You all, maybe not all of you, but most of you dated somebody who was a mistake. And you don't want that to keep you from procreating. Um, So these, well, your genes don't anyway. A chicken is an egg's way of making another egg. You know, you're, you're not really here, you're just your genes wanting to go on. So, um, but this circuit drives behavior. Now, addictions overwhelm this, but not everybody's addicted, and why is that? Well, trying drugs or starting on drugs, and it's, the exposure is key, getting drugs first is key. Most people won't do it because they're worried about potential consequences. And But if you're an extroverted person, or if you're depressed, or if everybody you know uses drugs, you're more likely to try it. More importantly... Um, If there's nothing reinforcing you in your life, if there's nothing good in your life, you're more likely to keep doing it. So depressed people, people who are extroverted, and people who have uh, negative life experiences are more likely to do this. And then this is where things like genes and uh, connections to the world, sociological issues like church and your job, either protect you or make you vulnerable. Most of you have to get up in the morning. And remember, the food, sex, sleep cycles are competing with the uh, alcohol cycle. And most of you have been exposed to an addictive drug, but you're not addicted because these other things protect you, like your connections to your friends and your social connections and your religious connection. And if you do research, what you see is those are all protective against addictions. They don't absolutely protect you, but they're relatively protective. So this cycle is sensitive to the world. Um, and there's Joe Brady's baboon again. And so a slightly different experiment you can do is you can give the baboon two levers and say, which would you rather have? what's behind door number one or what's behind door number two. And the baboons will always pick cocaine. And you think, okay, that explains it. I'll tell you a really cool experiment. This is the experiment that lets you understand how these things work. One of the guys in my lab when I was doing this kind of work, I worked with pigeons and he worked with rats. You train the rat to press a bar to get cocaine. Every six hours, light comes on, rat presses the bar 30 times, gets a shot of cocaine. And then after three days, take the rat to a wooden gymnasium that's about to be torn down where there's lots of rats, at night when rats are very active, and open the door and leave for six hours. And what do you think happens when you come back? The rat is gone, and he never comes back. Because the key to this experiment isn't the cocaine. It's the cage. What makes this experiment work is this baboon's in a cage, and he has access to a very limited number of behaviors. You are not in the cage unless you have depression, personality disorder, or other things that make it so that you can only face this apparatus. Now, I want to change gears for just a minute and talk a little bit about the way chronic pain is exacerbating this addiction epidemic we have in the United States. Um, So there's two kinds of chronic pain. There's chronic pain where you have ongoing injury, like a malignancy. And for today, I'm going to call that chronic acute pain. That is, the thing that's causing the pain is still there. But for the vast majority of chronic pain, the thing that caused the pain is not there or never was there. So pain where there's deafferentation, where you lose the nerves, pain where there's uh, sympathetic activation because of danger and because of chronic stimulation, which are adaptations of the nervous system, those kinds of pain continue when the original injury is healed. Low back, chronic low back pain. Often, people have chronic low back pain, but they have nothing fixable in their low back. The nerves get aggravated. What, they get, what happens is you get damage and, um, and, uh, and inflammation, and then you get scar tissue, and the nerves are trapped in the scar, and every time you move, it pulls on the nerves, and it feels like something terrible is happening. Well, nothing terrible is happening. That kind of pain is not helped very much by narcotics. And In fact, there's not even one good study showing that chronic pain over long periods of time is helped by narcotics. Acute pain is. Narco- a malignancy pain is, because it's a form of acute pain. But when the nervous system has, ad- has adapted in such a way as to produce pain, opiates seem to make it worse as often as they make it better. And in fact, long-term, high-dose opiates clearly makes it worse in most people. So, you've been told that pain is a vital sign and an emergency. And that you could be disciplined if you don't give adequate pain medicines. I know this because my patients come in and say, "Doctor Treisman, my pain's an eight. That's a pain emergency. You have to give me narcotics." And I say, "Oh no, no! It means your pain being an emergency means I have to address the problem. And here's how I'm addressing it: No narcotics for you. <laughs> Circle a ten. See what happens." So the things that are partly driving this, the inappropriate use of opiate prescriptions are an emphasis on short visits. Nothing's shorter than a visit where you give the person what they want. And an emphasis on a problem focus. Why are you here? I have pain. Ah, here's your pain medicine. And pain is a vital sign, which is the stupidest thing maybe we ever did in medicine, although there's a lot of challenges. Um, algorithmic medicines, where you have to follow a little, a little flow chart, and if you don't do it, you're outside the guidelines, and therefore you have to be shot. Um, and then patient satisfaction. The, I was told at Johns Hopkins that patient satisfaction is the coin of the realm. And I said, no, patient satisfaction is the fad of the moment. Getting people well is the coin of the realm. And they were mad at me. Um, Improve compliance and patient retention. You're all told to retain your patients. Psychiatrists learned in the 1960s, if you want to retain patients, you put them on Valium. And they come to every visit, because that's when they run out of Valium, and you give them enough Valium to get them to their next visit. And they pay their bill, and they're cheerful and happy, and they say, you're a great doctor, and they don't get better. But they get their Valium. And by the way, you can get good patient compliance and retention that same way. Um, this is a study that just came out in um, Archives of Internal Medicine. I'm showing it to you because it's great! It basically shows that patient satisfaction correlates with increased mortality. I've been saying this for years, but finally, and it wasn't me who did this study, finally someone did a nice study of it. And I want you to know, if you do what the patient asks you to do, they die. Because they didn't go to medical school. You did. I say that to patients all the time. I say, let's pretend that one of us went to medical school, And is a full professor of medicine and psychiatry at Johns Hopkins. And the other of us never finished high school and lives in a refrigerator box. Who should we let pick the treatment of those two people? And they laugh. They say, yeah, you're right, Dr. Triesvine. Because they know this. The patients know that if you let them have what they want, they'll die. But because of the nature of the person, they don't care. You care. And you say no, and then, they, and then you have high uh, dissatisfied patients. You have the highest rate or the least, the lowest patient satisfaction of anybody in your clinic. Of course you do. You're the guy they send people to when you don't want to give them narcotics. I'm, when, they, when patients are narcotic-seeking, they send them to me. And oddly enough, I have low patient satisfaction scores. <laughs> what do you think? Now, what's interesting is if you look a year later, I have fabulous patient satisfaction scores a year out. But there's a, the, the Hopkins thing is patient satisfaction scores are done at two weeks. That's when they're done. You can't change that no matter what. It's an act of God. So um, I'm telling you this because we are seeing an epidemic of the use of opiates in this country and other, and other uh, drugs, uh, stimulants, Ritalin, um, because patient satisfaction and other things like that, that are pushing you to give medications that you don't really think are good for the person, but everybody else tells you they are. Um, And we have to stop doing that because we're killing our patients. And the solution that the government came up with is to give you methadone and buprenorphine. But if you look back at my earlier slides, you see that buprenorphine and methadone both are being abused. In fact, methadone is responsible for more deaths than a lot of other drugs and is on the rise. that's because buprenorphine and methadone don't treat addiction. They help treat addiction. But the real treatment is something else. So the core elements of treatment are getting the person to recognize there's a problem. That's the, uh, I'm an alcoholic step, the first step in AA. That's the, come on, you drove your car through a wall and parked in your living room. When are you an alcoholic? When you park in the kitchen? And we confront patients, usually with a smile, and tell them they, are, they need to convert. They need to say, I agree that I have this terrible problem of alcoholism or drug addiction, and I have to stop using drugs. And then they need to be detoxified because without detoxification, you get nowhere. And then they need to be rehabilitated so that the cycles of food, sex, sleep, work, hobbies, and exercise that keep all of us relatively immunized against drug addiction are put back into the person's life. Otherwise, they're back in that cage. You have to get them out of that cage. And so you have to rehabilitate people, and usually that involves group therapy. And the freest, cheapest group is AA and NA. But you can send someone to it. So I say, oh, I run treatment groups. If you want to come see me for a treatment group, you can. It's $100 every time you come, and it's just as good as AA, which is free. So if you want to come, I'm glad to take the $100 from each of you. Um, then the treatment of the comorbid psychiatric conditions like personality disorder, depression, and, and, uh, and life circumstance. And then some form of relapse protection because that circuit, once it's established in your brain, stays there and you go right back to being an addict. Um, so um, I talked about conversion, confrontation with a smile, um, your goals versus the patient goals. I talk to patients about goals and uh, developing treatment contracts, detoxifying people, you all know how to do this. Um, and then um, pharmacological tapers for withdrawal. I taper everybody. I don't expect anybody to come off drugs on their own except for cocaine. Even for cocaine, there are certain things you can do that ameliorate the withdrawal. Um, rehabilitation, uh, damage control, environmental change, extinguishing the habit. Now, you can't get people to stop using drugs unless they're doing something else. They have to do something other than use drugs. And so they have to, have to develop new habits. You prescribe a new program of behavior that takes the place of drugs, because if you put someone in front of drugs, sooner or later they'll use. But if you give them something else, to take them away from drugs, they're less likely to use. And then adjunctive pharmacotherapy, like uh, substitute addiction, like buprenorphine and methadone, or blockade of reinforcement, um, like naltrexone, um, aversive conditioning, like antabuse, drive suppression, like bupropion, um, and the symptomatic treatment of withdrawal. And we, this pharmacotherapy is not curative. You can't just give people bup. Everybody wants bup. When you give people bup, here's what I tell them. I'm going to get you addicted to buprenorphine. And then you have to come to me to get it. If you go out and use heroin, you won't get high because buprenorphine blocks those receptors. So you can only get your addictive medicine from me. But instead of making you have sex with me, I'm going to make you go to AA meetings, get a job, get socially reestablished things that are good for you but you're going to be addicted to buprenorphine and that's okay with me because it's better than being addicted to what you're addicted to because what you're addicted to people make you do bad things to get it i'm going to make you do good things to get it but eventually i'm hoping that you'll say i don't want to be a drug addict anymore and i'll get you off buprenorphine and onto something more helpful but have no fear Buprenorphine is being diverted now in large quantities. It's become a big problem street drug throughout the country because a lot of people want to just give people buprenorphine, say, here's some buprenorphine. Well, they'll go out and sell their buprenorphine, trade it for other things, shoot it up, crunch it up, do all kinds of stuff with it. Um, treatment of comorbid conditions, I already talked a little bit about this, and I'm not going to go through it again. And then uh, substituted addiction is, is really important, but it is not a cure. So um, I'm going to skip these things. and um, so this is, Bobo remained free for the rest of his life, although he did find it necessary to seek counseling. We face perhaps the worst infectious epidemic in the history of mankind. We have perhaps the highest standard of living in the history of mankind. We are fabulously wealthy and well-off. Despite the recession, people are still lining up to go to Starbucks and uh, driving nice cars and living in nice houses. Um, but we have a terrible epidemic of addiction and a terrible epidemic of HIV and hepatitis C. I have data, showed you some of it, that treatment is cost effective, it works, that it gets people better, that it decreases the risk of spreading HIV and hepatitis C, that it improves quality of life and longevity for the patients, that it costs less to treat than to let people continue to use, and yet, so it's $556,000 a year for the average drug addict in Baltimore who's using, and it costs about $5,000 for the first year and $3,000 a year after that to treat them. And yet, I can't get any money for treatment because my patients are black, Hispanic, poor, psychiatrically ill, and they have no voice and they don't vote. They are disordered by their addiction, and therefore they're ignored by our politicians and our central uh, Um, centralized forms of health care, and I want you to demand more. I want you to raise hell. I want you to get out there and point out to people that addiction is a key thing. You're being told that you need better outcomes in your HIV clinic or you won't get funded. These patients give you poorer outcomes. They take more time. They're less efficient, and therefore they're going to be disenfranchised from medical care under those circumstances, and they already are being disenfranchised. These are patients you want to get rid of. We don't want to get rid of these people. We want to treat these people to stop this epidemic. And you need to demand more resources and raise hell, which I've been doing for a long time. And we can stop the HIV epidemic. We can stop the hepatitis C epidemic. And we can stop the homelessness epidemic by getting these people functional and productive. Thank you for inviting me. Is that okay? I mean, yeah,
0: pass it was okay. You, you passed the audition. That was great. Good, because I you. want to
1: be in the band. All
0: right. So real quickly, um, one of the things that uh, I have trouble understanding is people that we've gotten better, uh, not quite well yet, but we've used substitution therapy with either methadone or buprenorphine. And I'm finding that I would like to see them come off of methadone. Patients are sort of ready, but the methadone clinics don't take them off. Mm-hmm. And I have a weird sense that the clinics are benefiting from keeping these patients on methadone. Am I am I crazy? I mean, you well, are, yes. But, yeah, but, but that's, yeah, that's got nothing to do with okay. it. But
1: you're correct. They are benefiting. So, you know, I mean, if you stabilize someone on methadone, that's a lot less expensive patient to take care of than a person who's just coming in who needs to be stabilized. The better the patient is doing, the cheaper it is, the more profit the clinic makes on them, because they charge the same thing for a visit, whether the person needs two hours of counseling or three minutes of check-in. So yes, they, people tend to, but the other side of it is the, so can, is methadone a non impairing addiction? That is when you get someone on 150 milligrams of methadone a day, are you, are they still impaired? Are they at baseline? And they're not. So methadone and buprenorphine impair people. It's subtle, but it's definitely present. And the question becomes, are you a harm reduction guy? Whereas you say keeping these people on methadone reduces their harm. Or are you a rehabilitation guy? And um, harm reduction often comes down to whose harm are we reducing? And if they're on methadone, they don't steal, they don't do criminal behaviors, they don't cost the criminal justice system, they don't all these other things. So it's a good way to deal with patients. The problem is it doesn't let somebody maximize their potential. So when I talk to people about being in methadone or being on other drugs, it's, you know, several years of commitment to, tr- to being on a substitute therapy. But then at some point, when those circuits are reestablished, they're going to church and they have friends and they have, they have uh, an occupational drive and they have something that they're doing other than going to AA meetings and sitting in group all day, and they ha- their lives are filling up with things, and they're getting too busy to tolerate the methadone program's requirements, then we could talk about coming off methadone usually over a very, very long period of time, very slowly. And um, then at the very end, we taper them the last little bit and give them naltrexone for a couple of years. Because Naltrexone is now available as a shot once a month and it blocks opiate receptors and it discourages people from using opiates. They can use all they want. They don't get anything out of it. It's a great treatment for the next step. And then after it becomes silly that they're on naltrexone, you can stop that. And I have people who are off everything, doing great. Um, they they do have to stay in treatment. Otherwise, they're back in the cage.
2: Uh, Why are Americans more susceptible to addiction than other populations?
1: They're not, actually. We don't have a bigger addiction problem in America. We have a bigger prescription drug use addiction problem because of the changes in prescribing that have happened over the career of most of the people in this room. Um, But but addiction, the problem problems everywhere, um, and... What drives addiction in various environments depends on availability and social norms. So uh, one in 20 people is addicted to alcohol in the United States. Uh, one in 20 people who use alcohol regularly will get addicted to it. I shouldn't say one in 20 are addicted because a lot of people who don't use. In places where there's less alcohol use and it's proscribed, there's less alcoholism per person who's exposed to alcohol, but often addiction to other things. The more proscribed these behaviors are, the less of an addiction problem there is, but the more oppressive that society has to be. In societies that are liberal, Western Europe and the United States, there's a lot of addiction problems. In societies that are very
0: proscriptive, there's less addiction problem, but less free will. So this is kind of a follow-up to your last comment about naltrexone. What about naltrexone for alcohol addiction?
1: Yeah, so we're using it a lot. It doesn't block your ability to drink. What it does do is decrease drive. Both probably bupropion and naltrexone decrease. So naltrexone decreases the reward associated with alcohol, and bupropion probably releases enough dopamine by itself that it may decrease the drive for alcohol. And there's less data on that. So um, either one, either one, are helpful to the right patient. Um, Antabuse, uh, which is the, which is a uh, inhibitor of the acid aldehyde dehydrogenase enzyme. So when you drink alcohol, it's metabolized in your body to acetaldehyde, which is incredibly toxic, and then very quickly to acetic acid and vinegar, which isn't very toxic. And um, if you give an abuse, you block that second step. So when people drink, the alcohol is turned into the aldehyde, and that stays. And then you get really sick when you have a drink. So um, the problem with it is it's not very effective as a deterrent if you use it frequently. When it's effective is this. You have a patient who says... I never drink unless I go to a party. I go to a party, I have to have something. And then they can take Antabuse right before they go to the party. And if their wife says, here's your two you have this honey, they'll take it. They won't drink at the party. And it's pretty effective. But people who want to drink will stop their Antabuse, and they know to the minute when it's going to be worn off enough so they can drink and not get sick. So all, these, all those drugs are useful in the right patient. And I use a lot of naltrexone in alcoholic patients to try and help them decrease their craving because it's a benign thing to try
2: a couple of related questions. My home state of, Cal, of Colorado now has free prescription of marijuana and legalized marijuana. Yes. Does legalization of drugs make in, any sense as far as, you know, will it increase addiction, decrease addiction? Well, it,
1: it'll increase the number of people who get addicted to marijuana, but um, it decreases criminal activity, and the frequency of addiction to marijuana really is between 1 and 20 and 1 and 40, so it's around the same as alcohol. And um, I'm, I'm kind of in favor of marijuana legalization. Um, I, I think that it's not, the use to abuse ratio is not high enough to make it a drug that we want to prescribe. Um, on the other hand, um, I, I'll show you some, uh, next time I'll show you some data from Colorado, which is kind of scary about the age at which people are being exposed and the forms of marijuana that are around. Now, one thing that, that is true that people talk about with marijuana is if you have the right genes for schizophrenia and you're exposed to marijuana, your risk of schizophrenia goes up enormously. And so um, in families where there's schizophrenia, people need to be warned not to try marijuana because it's a big issue.
2: And related to that, what about your narcotic addicts who also use marijuana? Do you need to have them stop the marijuana also? Um,
1: so uh, the problem is being disinhibited for, any, for addicts of, to any one substance, being disinhibited on the other substance will bring them back to their use. So I tell people they've got to give up everything. Uh, people say, well, I can still drink, can't I? I say, no, because if you drink, you'll end up back on OxyContin. And, uh, the, and the, that's what the data shows. I mean, it, it's too high a risk. So being intoxicated isn't good for people who have addictions. Paraphilias, people who are addicted to, to uh, pornography um, or various sexual behaviors, if they drink, they relapse. And so I, I try to keep them away from being intoxicated.
0: So it says, what about uh, camprol? A what about what? Camprol. So
1: there's, there's, there are a whole bunch of things that are variously reinforcing that are in this gray zone of they haven't been recognized yet as uh, as addictive or they're, uh, they're, uh, they're uh, precursors to addictive drugs and other things. Um, and... Um, They vary in addictiveness again, um, but they're, most of them are more, the ones that are around are mostly more addictive than alcohol and marijuana. They're mostly in the one to eight plus uh, category. And so I I try to discourage people from using them. The other thing is that as wonderful as the organic chemists who make these things are in their bathroom using toilet water and whatever else, um, and and, uh, the tweakers out in, nowhere, Colorado are I, I know these guys are incredibly fastidious about uh, the, the drugs they make if you take something and you don't know what it is or where it's from and it's not from a pharmaceutical company occasionally it lesions your substantia nigra and you go from being normal to having the worst Parkinson's disease on the planet in a day and I I tell people you this isn't a designer drug made by a drug company to get you high that has been made under. This is something that somebody made in their bathroom or their basement at home. And yes, they're, they, yes they did take high school chemistry and follow a recipe, but um, sushi, most of the fish is frozen. It's hard to get really sick from sushi in general unless you, unless you eat lake fish but fugu which is the tetrodotoxin containing blowfish can kill you I want you I tell people I want you to think of the drugs that you're buying as the fugu of sushi would be that you only want fugu compared, prepared for you by a licensed chef and even then really <laughs> you know
2: okay, last question Um, We also face an epidemic of obesity. Is there anything that addiction research can teach us about helping our morbidly obese patients? Yeah, what it
1: teaches us is behavior. So behavior in general is, um, is the hardest thing in psychiatry to change. It's hard to change behavior. And the more impatterned that behavior becomes, the more habitual it becomes. The more it fits that person's life, the harder it is to change. So if you are a person who has developed alcoholism and you are a person who lives in an environment where you're constantly at cocktail parties and everybody's drinking and you're around alcohol all the time, you're a much tougher person to help than if you're a person who um, doesn't, isn't around alcohol very much and you developed alcoholism but I treated your depression. The same is true with obesity. If you get involved in a lifestyle when you're obese where you're going to the gym three times a week and you're around people who are big on physical fitness and you, if you're a doctor and you're working 7,000 hours a week and you're, you're running around doing this and running around doing that, it's much tougher to change your habits because you have to eat what's available when you get hungry and various other things, and it's hard to, it's hard to really follow the, follow the prescribed behavior. So um, the problem we have in part in our ob- uh, obesity epidemic is that junk food is everywhere. It's an accepted part of the culture. Cheap calories are are more likely to lead obesity than expensive calories, um, but it is a, if we, as a society, if we made healthier food, better food available, then we would do much better with the problem. I mean, it's a if we had a if we had it easier for people to make the change.
2: All right, great. Thank you very much. Thanks.
1: Thanks for inviting me back to Atlanta, guys. I really appreciate.